The Genesis Foundation was founded by John Studzinski in 2001. Over the past 20 years, the Foundation has donated more than £20 million to the arts. Through its funding and partnership model, it has enabled opportunities for thousands of young artists in theatre and music, building both their experience and their resilience. The Foundation partners with inspirational artistic directors at the Young Vic National Theatre and Almeida Theatre and the 16 on programmes that equip emerging artists for life as a creative professional. One of the newest partners is Jewish Book Week, and in April 2021, the Genesis Foundation and Jewish Book Week announced a new programme to champion and support emerging writers in the UK. The Genesis Jewish Book Week Emerging Writers Programme offers bursaries and mentorship to 10 emerging writers over 18 years of age of any background writing fiction, non-fiction and poetry. In this latest episode of Artistic Minds, writer George Prochnik, one of the mentors for the Emerging Writers Programme, discusses the nature of mentorship with Guy Stagg, the author with whom he's working. Guy's first book, The Crossway, was published three years ago to great acclaim. Well, Guy, it's, it's wonderful to be actually sitting here in person with you. And before we even dive into the fascinating subject that you're writing about, I wanted to ask you about what inspired you to begin seeking out a mentoring program to begin with, partly given the fact that you're a published author and you've written a book that's been very acclaimed, a beautiful account of a pilgrimage that you took now some years ago. And what did you feel at this phase in your evolution as a writer you might be able to get from the kind of relationship that hopefully we're forming now? Well, George, it's, it's lovely to be able to talk to you as well about this. And I think with the writing of my first book, it was quite a solitary process. I spent most of my time working on that without interacting with other writers, publishing professionals. And this was partly because I was not inside the publishing world. I'd spent a bit of time as a journalist, but I hadn't done a creative writing course. I didn't know many writers. But I think it was also a, a question of principle in that I, I felt that I had a collection of interests that were personal to me and perhaps even original. And I felt that these needed protecting or otherwise I might be distracted and begin to consider extra literary uh, elements of the writing process. You know, how likely something is to get published, for example. So that's the context behind my first book. And I felt towards the end of that process, not only that I'd gone as far as I could by myself, I'd learnt everything I could teach myself, as it were, but also this was quite a lonely way to work. And towards the end of the, that book, I began thinking more seriously about questions like, how does one shape a literary career? How does one continue to produce work, not just a single book, but several books, perhaps even a lifetime's worth of books? And I felt that I wouldn't be able to answer those questions by myself. And so I began looking for, for some, some kind of example, basically. And so even before I, I came across the Genesis Foundation 
Jewish Book Week scheme, I was already in a place that I was looking for some external guidance. Mm -hmm. And then just to give you a brief account of the, the, the next step, as it were, I think maybe like, like a lot of people, thoughts that had been vague or general in our minds over the period of the pandemic and over the period of the lockdown were concentrated. So for me, these sort of questions to do with, you know, this lonely model of the writing life that I'd acquired or the limits of that mm. lonely mo model, those questions became more, more intense. The limits became more apparent. So then it was really just a question of good fortune in that I had this project that had been coming together in my mind for a while. I didn't know when I was going to start working on this project. I wasn't sure I necessarily had all of the the full range of sort of skills in order to be able to write this project. And then when I, I found out about this scheme, it suddenly seemed as if here were the, the possible next steps to be able mm -hmm. to start work on it. Well, all of the proposals that I read were very strong, but yours leapt out at me, partly because I felt a personal affinity to the hybrid nature of the work that you're developing between biography, memoir, history, some criticism. And I want you to speak a little bit about it. I'll, I'll just say in a prefatory way myself that there's a very natural segue, it seems to me, between your first book, The Crossway, and what you're planning to do with Triptych. And although the aspects of this last period you've described just now as having concentrated your mind on the problems of loneliness, correct me if, if this is not how you see things, but in a sense what you're looking at are three lives that the individuals consecrated themselves in different ways to experiences of loneliness as their own channel to truth. And so you're staying within a world of reflections that engage questions about solitude and what lonely pursuits to truth may allow to unfold that we might lose in more actively collective settings. But perhaps that's abstract, and maybe you can say a bit about what, what you are doing. No, I, I think that's a very good way of introducing the project as a way of thinking about solitude and its relationship to the creative or, or intellectual life. To explain the book briefly, it's, it's a group biography looking at three figures. The first of these, Ludwig Wittgenstein, the, the well-known Austrian philosopher. The second is Simone Weil, a less well-known, at least in this country, French mystical writer. And the third is, is David Jones, who is a, a Welsh poet and painter. And all three of these figures, at around the age of 30, spent a period of time on retreat in a monastery. Wittgenstein spent a summer as a gardener in Klosterneuburg, which is near Vienna. Simone Weil spent two weeks at the Abbey of Salem in western France. And David Jones went on a series of retreats to Caldy Island, which is off the coast of Wales. And in each case, these figures were young enough to not yet know exactly how to shape their lives. In each case, these figures had had some experience of conflict and of violence. 
and in each case these figures had turned towards the religious life, often in an idiosyncratic way. None of them were conventional believers, but they had turned towards the religious life, I think, seeking some example of how to shape their daily routine, how to shape their interactions with a broader society, how to make sense of their ideas, make sense of their inner lives, and ultimately how to create their own work, be that creative work or more intellectual work. And I think that you can trace the influence of these stays on the, not only the work they later produced, but also the lives they, they later lived, which were often solitary lives, often, in, a, in the broader sense of the word, devout lives, and I think also sacrificial lives. And so I'm hoping that by writing about these three retreats, this will give me an, an opportunity to ask questions about the, the creative or intellectual life more generally. What is the relationship between that life and solitude or sacrifice? And, and when, I, when I learned about this scheme I, and, and learned that you were taking part, I was, I was very hopeful that, that you would choose my work because I, I felt that these were questions that you'd also considered in your own work uh, and that would maybe be able to offer some guidance into how one goes about thinking about these subjects and answering these questions. And so I suppose on, on that point, I, I just wanted to ask you, why was it that you decided to to get involved with the scheme and, and what were you hoping might be possible in the, the mentoring context? Well, let me um, first circle back towards some of the points that you made so eloquently just then, because I remember when, when I was researching for the book I wrote about silence and noise, I spent some time at a Trappist monastery where there's not an absolute vow of silence, but essentially the monks live their lives in silence. And I remember the monk who was kind of my guide there, really my mentor during that period, speaking about the monastic life and the silence surrounding it or enclosed by it as lending itself to a radical confrontation with the self. And one aspect of what I found there that came to mind when I began reading your proposal and sort of thinking about these artist, philosopher, activist figures who, who you'd chosen to focus on was my chance, really, discovery of a sort of log in this abbey. It was New Mellore Abbey in, in the Great Plains in the Midwest in the United States, which had in it a number of personal accounts by monks, often novices at the time they wrote, about what had made them seek out the vocation. And there was a surge of membership in the abbey after the Second World War. And this wasn't surprising to me. It seemed to me that after the horrors of that conflict, that experience, that you might seek the refuge, the quiet, the sanctuary that a monastery would provide. But in fact, to my surprise, what many of the individuals wrote about was finding in the monastic experience a continuity with the intensity of the experience of wartime that after they had initially gone back to civilian life, they'd lacked and missed, so that they weren't seeking peace 
they were seeking the intensity of the struggle that that dedication, consecration of one's life to the monastic vocation requires. So when I read your proposal and saw that you were going to include a memoristic aspect in what you were doing, first of all, I was attracted because in my own work recently, I've found my only way into different biographical subjects to be through some effort to put something at stake for myself. And this is something you and I have spoken about and clearly is also the case in your own aspirations with this work. You know, if you're not, to my mind, an archival worker primarily, if your research isn't mostly taking place in the stacks of one library or institute or another, you really are compelled to ask yourself what you in particular can bring to this project. Why are you doing it? I mean, it forces much more, I think, broad existential questions about why are you writing about Wittgenstein, who's been written about many times, Simone Weil and David Jones less so, but what's your stake in it? And the fact that you saw your own quest to enlarge and perhaps to beyond even just enlarging, to come to a place of greater certitude and conviction with your own path as an artist, that you saw that this search to learn about these different lives might help to bring that about was very, it was very appealing to me. I think this is a moment in publishing as well, to think professionally, when for all of the difficulties with a reduced readership, etc., there is a greater receptivity to more porous works, works that are willing to kind of bridge genres and to understand that some kind of deeply affecting quest may be at the heart of a lot of nonfiction work once you strip away the pretense to an Archimedean vantage point. This was certainly the experience with my first book, which was which was a travel book, and travel books come out of a Victorian tradition where you typically have the very buttoned up, very emotionally inviolate figure of the mustachioed Victorian traveller who explores the deepest and darkest reaches of the empire and remains emotionally unaffected by everything that that they experience. And obviously it's a troubling legacy and and not a tradition that I I wanted to write in myself. So even though I borrowed certain tropes from from that tradition with the idea of a, a, a grand journey, it was very important to me to try and make my motivations as clear as possible in that book and also to expose myself emotionally as, as much as would would help with the storytelling. And and you're, you're right and you're very perceptive to note the parallel between that and, and the book that I'm working on now, because these questions I have about Wittgenstein, about Vey and about, about Jones are biographical in that I want to understand better the part that they're spiritual lives and that their inner lives played in their careers and and in their ideas. But it's also autobiographical to an extent that I would like to better understand in my own life whether or not these kind of artistic careers or intellectual careers are useful models, because on the one hand they appeal to us in the same way that perhaps a saint might appeal. They're very extreme examples. They seem uncompromising in their dedication to their particular causes or their particular ideas. 
And nonetheless, the more time you spend sort of reading biographies, reading correspondence, the more you have a sense that these are also quite unhappy lives. And even though it's a bit of a cliche, I think it's possible to still be haunted by that idea that perhaps artistic creation, perhaps greatness even, requires a degree of unhappiness. And so I, I hoped that by writing about these figures, I'd be able to think about these questions more deeply. But in order to be able to do that, it requires a degree of memoir material, really a degree of self-revelation to understand why someone, why in this case me, would be attracted to this very sacrificial model of the artistic or intellectual life. That's all beautifully put. And I'm curious, did the three figures begin to emerge for you in tandem as potential subjects? Or did you find yourself drawn to one and then begin to build out from that individual to the idea of a triptych biography as you're describing this? I think it actually began elsewhere with a little known fact about T.S. Eliot, which is that in the latter years of his life, he was regularly going on retreat to an abbey called Nashtam Abbey. And he wrote in a letter to one of his friends that he liked the place enough that he hoped to end his life there. Uh, and this is not what happened. He, in fact, met his second wife and, and the last years of his life were very different. But I was, I was astonished by the fact that the foremost modernist poet in the English language had ambitions to end his life essentially as a monk. This made me think that I'd perhaps misunderstood a little the intellectual and religious life of that period. And that was a way in for me into thinking again about the interwar period. As you mentioned a short while ago, after the Second World War, there was a surge in the number of applicants to monasteries. And something similar happened after the First World War. In, in England, for example, there was a 10-year period where the, the levels of, of Anglican church attendance rose. There was a, a far greater increase in terms of the number of, of practicing Catholics, so that the, the number of Catholics more than doubled in that period. And this can also be seen in the intellectual and cultural life of the period. So a number of well-known writers, cultural figures, artists became religious uh, and were often drawn towards the more traditional, the more demanding forms of religion. So that may be Anglo-Catholicism, that may be Catholicism. And this, I think, is something that is often overlooked when you read biographies of figures from that time and when you read more general cultural histories, because your average contemporary biographer is likely to be less religious and less interested in religion. And, and it sits uncomfortably. The religion sits uncomfortably with them often. Often it's, it's bizarre. It's even embarrassing. If, mm -hmm. if for As you mentioned, Wittgenstein has been written about in great detail and, and to a very high level of quality. But your average analytical philosopher reads his correspondence from between the wars and is embarrassed by his you know, relentless references to God and his his almost sort of fanatical religiosity from that period. And therefore, I hoped that I would be able to write about this, not from the perspective of a believer, but I guess from the perspective of a sympathetic outsider. And that by taking beliefs as seriously as my subjects took it, I hoped that I would maybe be able to present a new and interesting insight into into them and to the period more generally. Uh, certainly, I've also found myself interested in figures 
this this book, like the book that I wrote about Gershom Sholem, who, while he was the founder of the academic discipline of Kabbalah, it didn't exist at a, as a university subject before him, was himself never really an active member of any collective of group of believers. I mean, he saw himself very much as a Jew, but he didn't go to synagogue, not in any serious way. He didn't really pray. He saw the possibility for believing in God, perhaps, and benefiting enormously from immersing in the spiritual writers of a vast kaleidoscopic array of figures that clearly helped to inform his understanding of history and of himself, but that didn't necessarily require that he found faith in what you talk about in relationship to your other book, that idea of a St. Paul moment, that, that singular moment of revelation where, where we really accept a canonical religion, perhaps. So you said you're not coming at, at this topic as a believer, but do you think it's ever possible that you would find yourself wanting the sort of retreat or engagement or at least sanctuary of a monastic experience for a, a longer period of time than just what you may take part in, in over the course of your research of this book. So the stage that I am with the the research of the book is the memoir element of the book will be structured around visiting these these three monasteries where my subjects went, spending roughly around a week in each one, and trying to get some sense of the experiences they had while there by participating in the, the monastic life and the routine that is, is consistent enough that we can be confident that, that they, Jones and Wittgenstein, would have experienced something very similar. I've spent a little bit of time in monasteries, but I've not been on these longer retreats. And I have found that the experiences that I've had so far are often complicated and even confounding. And the reason is that even though I I'm not a practicing believer. I am conscious of having quite a strong romantic draw towards this life. And part of what attracts me to this life is there seems something quite inspiring about the example of people who have committed themselves utterly to mm -hmm. a single cause, who have shaped their life around that cause, and if we take the, the job or the purpose of a monk or nun as essentially being prayer, that cause is one for which they're unlikely to get any earthly reward or return. They're never going to know that they've spent their life in the right way. And I think for anyone with artistic ambitions, this is a very powerful example because it parallels the artistic life, but in a way seems a pure example because the writer can... or the artist or whoever it may be can hope to win prizes, maybe achieve some sort of a fame or claim. And this is not possible in a monastic setting. And the other thing is, away from this kind of lofty language, that many monks and nuns live these very routine lives where they're, they're doing chores and they're keeping their, their monasteries in one piece and they're, they're farming or they're fixing things. And even though these are done in a religious context, there's also a practical, hands-on quality to this life, which, you know, I think pushes against these more romantic notions of what that life consists of. But 
to relate it once more to my project, I wonder if, if that insight was also something that my subjects had to deal with. I think all three of them found living in this world difficult for various reasons. I suspect all three of them hoped or imagined that within these monastic contexts, these difficulties would would lessen. I suspect that all three of them then had to confront the fact that whatever their faith was, it didn't fit into the, the more orthodox model of monastic life, and therefore was perhaps not sufficient to sustain them for a lifetime in one of these settings. And then all three of them then had to deal with the fact that whatever kind of belief or even vocation they had, it was one that was going to be realised in the areas where their true talents lay. And we can all be grateful for that fact, mm -hmm. that, that that's what happened. But I don't imagine that process was, was easy when it was being lived. I think when you're speaking of that quote from Rilke, which, paraphrasing, is, isn't ephemerality the very fragrance of our days? And an artist might not need to have a vocation in the monastery to still periodically be able to find some infusing, nurturing solace or set of challenges there. I mean, perhaps, you know, if we weren't today quite so frightened, if we come from the secular world, of religious possibilities, it might be possible to imagine moving in and out of that species of both life and space of contemplation without it necessarily involving compromise. You, of course, rightly alluded to the fact that the monks have to make a real lifelong commitment. But there is, of course, also a long tradition, long before the sort of present-day tourism for silent retreats, etc., of people spending periods of time in, in monasteries and being able to benefit from that without it necessarily requiring a full-on commitment. And so maybe in some way what you are uncovering with these figures and thinking about that era a little bit differently is what it might mean to keep searching and not shutting the door on any avenue where great truths might reside, yet still understanding, at least ultimately, that the work before one is going to take place in the medium of art still. Yes, and I, this maybe takes us back to the subject of mentorship. We have talked before about the fact that in different art forms, the role of mentorship operates slightly differently. Philosophy provides us with quite a neat example of a, a sort of student-pupil relationship where ideas can be tested in, in debate. But in the other forms, the relationship between younger figures and older figures and what they can learn from each other, I think the examples are a little bit less clear-cut. However, with the, the figures that I'm writing about, I think what you could say with all of them is that they were seeking models for how to live. They all had quite idiosyncratic careers, and I suspect within the comparatively comfortable and establishment families, backgrounds that they came out of, there were not many examples for the, the lives that they ended up living, which were, which were solitary and which were not successful in the conventional sense of the word. None of them ever rose up any particular hierarchy. 
However, I wonder if in monastic life they found an alternative example for how to live, mm -hmm. which is, as we've mentioned, it's, it's an example of a life of devotion and a life of commitment. Yet at the same time, it rejects quite a lot of the evidence and trappings of success in the wider world. And therefore, maybe one way of, of thinking about the, the monastic life is it provides an example that you don't necessarily need to follow, but that you can take some inspiration or courage from the fact that it simply exists. I, th I think absolutely. And perhaps in this mentoring relationship that we're forming, I'm just simply at a different point in my life than you by virtue of age. And that hasn't brought me certitude. And maybe I, if I can help you to find a different kind of comfort with the possibility of leaving certain questions open or finding answers that you're then willing to undermine and keep rediscovering how to live your life as a writer, as an artist. That's a role that doesn't involve a traditional form of tuition, but it's about sort of sustaining a set of attitudes at different points in one's life when it will have different kinds of resonances. I think that all of these figures, I like very much the idea, as you just put it, that they were looking for models and clearly they were also willing to keep changing those models over the course of their complicated and in many ways frustrated, but in many ways I'm sure also intermittently sublime lives. For more information on the Genesis Foundation, visit genesisfoundation.org.uk where you can also find details about the Genesis Jewish Book Week Emerging Writers Programme under Partners. Guy Stagg's website is guystagg.co.uk and George Prochnik's most recent book, Heinrich Heine, Writing the Revolution, was published in 2020 as part of Yale University Press's Jewish Lives series. His previous book, Stranger in a Strange Land, Searching for Gershom Sholem and Jerusalem, was a New York Times editor's choice and was shortlisted for the Wingate Prize in the UK. For more information about Jewish Book Week, just go to jewishbookweek.com. To listen to more episodes in the Genesis Foundation's Artistic Minds podcast series, please subscribe and consider leaving Artistic Minds a review. And do look out for another episode of Artistic Minds very soon.